This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. In the studio with us now, Peggy Collins, investing team leader, so glam. This is where radio just doesn't fully do justice. She's gorgeous anyway, so but she's she totally is. glammed up today. She's glammed up today because private equity, you know, I said to Carol this morning, I talk about private equity all the time. You and I talk about private equity all the time, Peggy, because it's kind of our jobs. But I feel like the last 24 hours, it's been like bing, bang, boom stuff happening, including a big scoop from your team last night. Huge scoop by reporter Sabrina Wilmer. Essentially, what she wrote up was that Blackstone is nearing about $20 billion for its latest, its eighth flagship buyout fund and a first close in March or April. So this is big dollar figures, and it shows that the appetite for private equity from investors is still huge. Well, and what's funny is, we'll, we'll get to uh, my brilliant piece of prose a little bit later on in the conversation. Phenomenal. Um, <coughs> Did <laughs> talk about in that story we talked about you know the record was set about two years ago Apollo coming in at twenty four point seven billion they took the record away from Blackstone and here comes Blackstone all over again you know potentially getting higher than that if if we're looking at this for a first close that appetite unbelievable. It is. And it's unbelievable because we have been hearing people say for the past year, hey, these valuations are high. And also they've been sitting on tons of dry powder. So you're putting more money into a fund when we already know that a lot of the private equity funds have been sitting on this cash that they call dry powder, waiting for opportunities and that it's getting harder and harder to find deals that they think are priced at a value that makes sense. Does it just speak to, though, Peggy and Jason, that the private equity firms, if you look at the returns that they've had over the last few years, that even though they still have a lot of money to work, investors are looking at the kind of returns that they've had over the the last few years versus, let's say, the hedge fund community, and they're saying, I'm going to still give you more money. You guys will eventually figure out what to do with it, and you'll make money. I think that's a great point, Carol. And I think because a lot of the money- From the non-PE person in the room. She is so smart on so many things. (laughs) My idol, Carol. Go on. Uh, It's so true. Um, I think that in general, one of the things that's happening too is that we are seeing a lot of money around the world coming from pension funds into private equity. And pension funds, as well as sovereign wealth funds, have longer time horizons, but also we're seeing an aging population around the globe. And so we need to get returns, or I should say the investment funds need to get returns for people, as you said, Carol, in the double digits. The single digit returns aren't really going to do it. Because is that where the money's coming from? Is it all pension funds? It's a lot of pension money, a lot of institutional money. And again, they have longer time horizons, as Jason said. They can be in a fund where the returns are going to post in the double digits or high single digits on on paper for the first one to five to eight years. But actually, by the end, they'll be able to get double digit returns. So another interesting uh, piece of news today was we got the chairman's letter from Henry Kravis and George Roberts over Mm -hmm. at KKR. This is an annual missive they send out that just gives you a little bit of a win window into what those guys are thinking. And one stat that really jumped out at me, at least, is $195 billion in assets under management. That's notable in its own right, but two-thirds of that 
outside of private equity. And so we think of these as private equity firms, but really, and Peggy knows this better than anyone, you're talking about alternative credit, you're talking about hedge funds, you're talking about all sorts of things, real estate infrastructure uh, that aren't, you know, kind of plain vanilla LBOs. And that's where they see a lot of this opportunity. That's right. I mean, Blackstone has talked about expanding into life sciences. We've seen a lot of biotechnology. TPG does a lot of Silicon Valley type investments. And also earlier this week, we had Aries, another private equity fund, announcing that it's starting a strategy and fund around climate infrastructure. It's like watch out VC world, right? It is. Well, and also, and also, as Jason said, these firms are giant. They're becoming yeah. real asset managers, not just private equity shops. They're also, some of them, like Apollo, looking to be the next GE Capital. I love this story. Uh, We talked with Shanali Basak for our weekend Business Week program for radio and TV, but it's a smart story, interesting story in terms of what they're doing. Terrific story by Shanali. Essentially, what Apollo is saying is, hey, we see something like a GE Capital where the financing arm of GE and saying we can kind of replicate some of that and potentially even in a better way because of all the assets. You hope in a better way, right? Yes, I hope so. Because they have investor capital to draw on, they have the giant Athene holding, like which kicks off a lot of income for them. But it is, as you said, Carol, a risk because GE Capital nearly brought down GE. Mm-hmm. Right. It's a really interesting story because it just illustrates where these guys are having to go for returns. But you're also seeing, this goes back to Carol's point earlier, you're seeing investors essentially say, have at it. Like, here's more money. You know, yeah, like exactly. More and, more. and, you know, you have these different strategies. You know, we caught up uh, a couple weeks ago when we were down in Charlotte with David Blitzer, who mm-hmm. runs Tactical Opportunities over at Blackstone. And, you know, he has this pool of money where big investors essentially say, here's a couple billion dollars. I kind of don't even need to know what you're going to do with it off the top. Invest it where you can in all different strategies. And by the way, then just keep recycling it because I just needed to keep making more and more money. Pay me as you go because I got to meet all these obligations that, that you're talking about. And they have access to investors around the world now, right? I mean, we're just seeing these firms branch into Asia. As you mentioned, the KKR letter out today definitely talked about Asia. Yes. Carlisle's been making a big push into Asia, starting up another Japan fund in Japan. Mm-hmm. So it really is global. So they have a bigger space to tap. And they're also kind of out of the government's purview, I feel like, at this point in terms of regulatory oversight. All right. That's exactly where I was going next, which is... Guess what? Jason did a story in the magazine. (laughs) (laughs) What could go wrong for these guys? And I really believe, as do a lot of people, that the thing that could happen is Washington could wake up here. Yeah, I think so, too. We are at a moment where private equity has largely eluded, you know, the big banks have been called to Capitol Hill, the big tech companies more recently, private equity has been able to navigate around that. It's always sunny in private equity. That's the headline. Until the clouds come. Until the clouds come and until it's not. So I think, I really believe this, watch this space because you could see some mm-hmm. of these guys, especially, you know, Toys R Us, I think was a little bit of a canary in a coal mine to some extent. KKR and Bain having to pay off, uh, you know, pay $20 million uh, in severance after that company, which was bought in 2005, went bankrupt. You made our day. Can I just say that? Peggy, the best. Yeah. Peggy Thanks Collins, for me. investing team leader here at Bloomberg News. Check her out on Twitter at MKM Collins. And also Check the host of team. Bloomberg Finance, Saturdays at noon, Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. I'm from the Empire State. Okay. 
fits with our rap. No, it doesn't fit with our rap names. Okay, anyway, betting big on a big mall. That's exactly what Hudson Yards is doing. Lily Katz is real estate reporter at Bloomberg News. She's here with the details in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker It's one of the best beats in the building. We were saying, right, the big real estate players, it's always fascinating to kind of see what they're doing and get their opinion on things. It's a really fun beat, yeah. And yeah. nothing bigger is happening, really, in New York than Hudson Yards. We've been talking it's about all, it forever. It's so Hudson Yards is... Being unveiled this massive $25 billion development on Manhattan's west side. Part of it is a $2 billion shopping mall that they're developing, and it's opening next week on Friday. Um, And it's sort of an interesting time for a mall to be opening in New York City, right? I mean, first of all, it's not really known as a shopping mall city. It's more of a street retail city. Um, And so the question is, you know, can this thing become sort of the new center of the Manhattan retail scene, or is it just going to be you know, sort of cut off a collection of upscale shops that's cut off from the rest of the city. I have to say, when you, you know, you commute into the World Trade Center and everything that they've done down there in terms of shopping and it kind of being a place to kind of be, to eat, and all these different things, that is that the kind of mall that they're doing here at Hudson Yards or planning to do? You know, down at the World Trade Center in the Oculus, um, there's not actually a ton of restaurant offerings. There's not a lot of places to sit down. The people that I have spoken to don't see it as a terribly successful really? mall in New York City. Okay. Uh, and so what they're trying to do at Heads and Yards is do, you know, a real variety of, of stores. There's going to be about 100 stores, including New York's first name in Marcus, um, and a collection of restaurants. It's, it's really trying to be sort of this, you know, mixed-use um, shopping mall that has entertainment, it has food, you know, you can go sit outside. Um, so they're really trying to kind of do it all. Well, and it's interesting, too, because, you know, for those of us who have been in and around New York City for a long time, I mean, this was an area of the city, that whole sort of west side, that lower west side, was really a no man's land. I mean, for so long, you have the Javits Center there, and then sort of nothing. It's sort of Hell's Kitchen, you know, and then you sort of go further down. I mean, this is a remarkable turnaround. And the High Line obviously has something to do with setting it up potentially for success, right? Yeah. I mean, I think the High Line was definitely part of it. It brought a lot of tourists. Um, there are around 7 or 8 million yeah. tourists visit the High Line every year. So uh, Hudson Yards... And this is, we should remind people, so th- this is the old like railroad... Elevated railroad. Ele- yeah, that, yeah. Used to, that used to come into the meatpacking And it's district. now a, a park. Yeah. Right. Um, so they're definitely hoping to draw people from that. Um, people spend 94 minutes on average on the High Line, so they're hoping That's you know people stat, people That's will you know have too. to go to the bathroom or want to go eat some food and stop by Hudson Yards. So I mean, but one benefit that they do have is they have sort of this built-in population in Hudson Yards. There's 4,000 apartments that are going to be there. There's going to be 40,000 office workers. So even if it doesn't work out with the High Line, it's right. like they kind of have this built-in consumer base. Right. Well, Lily, it plays into that kind of whole idea of those, you know, people and developers are building those communities where you can live, work, play, Play. shop, right? Yes. And schools and, you know, kind of everything. What kind of, though, I'm curious what their target audience, though, is in terms of the type of, Neiman Marcus, not cheap. Yeah. And I'm just wondering about the kind of retail and the type of restaurants that that they're thinking to put in there. You know... I think that if you asked them, they would say, we want to target everyone. I will say that, personally, to me, it looks a little more upscale. Like, you know, there's a Shake Shack. You can go get a burger there, but it's a lot of really expensive restaurants um, and a lot of more pricey uh, stores. So um, it'll be interesting to see. They they told me that um, they're expecting about 40% of the traffic to be 
tourists and about 30% to be office workers. And that is of around 15 to 22 million visitors they're expecting a well, year. And I'm glad you mentioned the, the office side of it because we do know, we were talking about KKR earlier, mm-hmm. they are moving their headquarters over there. BlackRock moving its headquarters. Wells Fargo, I believe, mm-hmm. is going to have a big office as well. So these are name brand and you know, speaking plainly, well-heeled yeah. employees who, who are going to be around there. And as you yeah, say, eating, right. if not shopping, you know, eating and, and, and sort of populating that area. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the profile of company that is moving to Hudson Yards is generally a pretty high paying company. Yeah. So, I, you know, and, and those office towers, some of them are actually connected to the shopping center. So you can literally, you don't have to go outside. You can walk right into the shopping center. Like, and, what if, and we've seen some of that, what? sorry to interrupt yeah. you, down uh, a little further downtown at Brookfield Place as well, which right. has been developed, you know, a little further uh, downtown there on the west Yeah. Side. Brookfield Place has done a good job of, you know, they have a really good food scene there. Yes. They put on a lot of events. Um, they did lose their first anchor or their inaugural anchor, Saks Fifth Avenue, yep. after only two years. So, I mean, just generally speaking, like I said, it's, it's like kind of a, a, an interesting time to be opening this mall. It's a big in New York and in the U.S. in general, because malls are struggling in what, general. What about Time Warner Center? Just got about 30 seconds. Like, has that done well in terms of there's a lot of office, there's residential, and there's yeah. a bunch of stores on a couple of levels? I think people levels. would say it's done, fared better than some other malls in New York City. That's yeah. all, another project being developed by Related, who is also developing Hudson Yards. And that attracts about 15 million visitors a year, which is, you know, it's not nothing. That's a lot, yeah, that's a lot no, of people. So. Exactly. But you're right. As the pushback on malls, it's interesting to see them kind of being all in on it. Mm-hmm. Um, great story. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for dropping by. Lily Katz is our real estate reporter at Bloomberg. News. So feeling good. Yeah, that is certainly becoming much more important about doing good, really, when it comes to companies. And it's also something that investors are demanding more and more of. It's all part of the world of ESG. So let's get into that with our next guest. Let's head out to Los Angeles, bring in Bobby Turner, principal and CEO of Turner Impact Capital. Nice to have you here, uh, Bobby, on Bloomberg Radio. Tell us a little bit about uh, when it comes to ESG, when it comes to impact investing, uh, what you guys have been up to. Good morning, Carol. Good to be here. And Jason, nice to meet you as well. Hey, always happy to talk about how business can be used as a force for good. Um, I think essentially let's talk about the fact that, you know, starting as a country, uh, there are some daunting challenges uh, that we face in the areas of things like education and health care and housing and um, income uh, disparity. And our reliance upon the government and philanthropy to address these issues has actually handicapped our outcomes. At its core, impact investing is really an investment strategy that harnesses market forces to create scalable, sustainable, durable solutions, and yes, profitable solutions um, that can tackle some of these most daunting challenges on a very cost-effective and efficient way. And one of the uh, areas that I know you're looking at, Bobby, is this this piece that I feel like is one of the big bugaboos of our time, which is affordable housing mm-hmm. in fast-growing okay. urban areas. We talk about it here in New York. I know you look at it in Los Angeles as well, but it's not just limited to sort of the big, hugely populated cities. This is a real issue. It's come up uh, all the time. How does that get fixed? So let's talk about the fact that everybody suffers when we don't have affordable workforce housing within close proximity of job centers. Families suffer, productivity suffers, the environment suffers. Today in America, we have 43 million renter households. One out of two renter households is rent burdened, spending over a third of their income on rent. One out of four is severely rent burdened, spending over 60% of their income on rent. And that comes to the expense of food security, health security, and retirement security. Candidly, it comes to the expense of hope, and it's not sustainable. 
sustainable. We have a daunting challenge that needs to be addressed. Part of the big challenge... So, so wait, Bobby, I'm going to jump in. Bobby, I got to jump in for a second, just because I feel like we certainly here at Bloomberg have been covering kind of the injustices when it comes to home ownership and how expensive homes have gotten for several years now. Uh, So what do we do as investors to kind of help this situation along? Because I constantly hear developers pointing at governments, governments pointing at developers. So what's the solution? How do we do it? How as investors do we kind of help this cause? So solution number one is we've got to go into triage mode and preserve the existing stock. While there's huge demand and it's growing, what we're seeing is the existing stock of naturally affordable housing is disappearing. So number one is we have to stop that erosion. We've got to preserve and entice and incentivize developers to buy and hold and preserve the affordability. Then we're going to have to figure out how can we build new uh, naturally occurring or affordable workforce housing. And given the parameters of where wages are and where construction costs are, you cannot build new, only charge 30% of a family's income and drive a market rate return. So there's going to have to be a partnership between the public and private sectors so that we can incentivize capital, market rate driven capital to invest and build new. And we're going to have to be innovative by working with communities to create as of right zoning to provide bonus densities in many cities across the country now to incentivize people to build new. They'll waive real estate taxes to developer to again buy down the risk and increase the returns for the development community. But it is a big problem and it is growing and there needs to be much more conversation. Well, Jason, I'm just thinking about the conversation we had earlier with Peggy in the private equity world, how much funds they are awash in capital, but you're not going to have, whether it's PE firms, investors of any type or any ilk, they're not going to go, they're not going to invest unless there's going to be those returns. A good return, yeah. Which complicates the kind of this situation, even in terms of what Bobby's talking about. And so, Bobby, let's talk about that. I mean, when you're talking to institutional investors, I mean, it's one thing to, and I'm I'm looking at some of the names that you have, you know, Rockefeller Brothers Fund, you know, they are obviously very open-minded and progressive about, you know, social issues and things like that. But if you're talking about, say, University of Michigan Endowment, they got to pay for stuff. So they need to, they need to be getting the sorts of returns that they're getting elsewhere, right? So how do you ensure, to Carol's really on-point question, that you're delivering the sorts of returns that people expect from this sort of asset class? So first and foremost, the most, most typically investors will be skeptical about the idea that profits and purpose can play nicely in the sandbox. If you're going to superimpose a societal metric on a, on a financial return, you'll sacrifice yield. It's actually just not the case. I, I've been in the business of investing in underserved, economically challenged communities for over 30 years, starting way back with Magic Johnson. And what we've been able to prove is that the reality is, is one can drive actually better risk-adjusted returns by investing in social injustice because of the lack of correlation between the, the underlying demand for these services and the broader market indices. Uh, the demand for charter school seats or, or preventative health care or affordable housing doesn't go up and down with the Dow Jones Industrial Average. So you can actually, if you can understand the opportunity, identify, quantify, and mitigate the risks of social injustice, you can actually create innovative, durable solutions that actually drive better risk-adjusted returns for portfolios than traditional real estate investment transactions or strategies. I hear what you're saying, and I believe you, and yet I feel like there's still a lot of skepticism out there on the part of institutional investors. Why do you think that is? Well, again, because I think that in in my generation of investors, we were trained that one would have to segregate profits and purpose. It takes a unique perspective. Uh, It takes a – listen, the reality is is, uh, – 
consumers are demanding that business be used as a force for good today. Yeah. So those that, in, in, those that don't practice social responsible practices, they will put at risk both the revenues and enterprise value because the new form of activism is what we call shopping. And never before in the history of this country have corporate reputations been more at risk because if you're practicing bad uh, yeah. responsible abilities, uh, the internet will light up and of course people will stop uh, supporting your brands. I yeah. found it fascinating that during the Super Bowl, right. Budweiser ran a commercial, and Budweiser is now brewed with wind energy. Right, right. I'm not sure yeah. how that helps the product, but they're sending a it's strong a good, message to consumers. It's a good point. Bobby Turner, thank you so much. Principal and CEO at Turner Impact Capital, joining us on the phone from Los Angeles. So we're all having a flashback, right? That really does my take God. us back, right? I'm uh, sitting in front of my TV as <laughs> like a 10-year-old waiting for Fraggle Rock to come on. HBO, of course, the theme uh, there from HBO. It takes me back to Sopranos and Sex and the City when they were kind of back-to-back. Um, great cover story of the magazine this week about how AT&T is dragging HBO's streaming strategy out of the dark ages. Let's get into this with a reporter who wrote it, Felix Gillette, writer at Bloomberg Business Week. Also joining, uh, joining us is Joel Weber, our Bloomberg Business Week editor, both in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Felix, let's kick it off with you. Yep. HBO, and we've all had this conversation, used to be, I want to be HBO. Anybody mm-hmm. who was creating content, that's what uh, kind of their goal was. Right. HBO, though, kind of lost it a little bit when it came to streaming. Yeah, I mean, I think all the innovation and creativity that you've seen in the programming has in many ways been lacking in terms of the business development in the technology. Um, and it partly is just this a cultural thing with HBO. You know, they really see themselves as a media company, not as a technology company. And, uh, you know, they've been, uh, you know, basically for decades, this challenge of trying to optimize and maximize HBO on the Internet. It's enchanted and frustrated just waves of technology executives who've taken a run at this thing. And now, you know, now it's AT&T's turn to try. So I think there's a lot that uh, I, I was just fascinated by this story because it was one that we actually put in motion weeks ago. Yep. We said, there's this big debut coming up, season finale, maybe you've heard of this show, Game of Thrones. It's sort of the biggest thing on TV, <laughs> yeah. right? Not on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And uh, that comes out last season, next month. And so we really wanted to hit that. And then some other news happened, which right. was basically, you know, Bepler at HBO, mm-hmm. no longer at HBO, right? Yep. And Richard so Plepler, right? Who had been there for name. almost 30 years. And, huge yes. name. And, and so one of the things that I think you uncovered while you're doing this story was this tension between Netflix and HBO yep. and, and Netflix almost looks more like the usurper to use the Game of Thrones yes. language here, right? Yeah. And what what did you learn about that tension? Well, I mean what's fascinating about it is that, you know, there was this amazing moment in the early days of streaming when Netflix was still basically a company that sent out DVDs by mail to people, right? And a sweet, innocent company. Yes. And there was this moment where they just launched their streaming service the first time in early 2007. And there was a team of executives uh, working on technology inside of HBO that were watching this happen and say, you know what? That would be a great compliment to what HBO does, you know? And if we, had, if we acquired uh, Netflix, 
Time Warner would have this immense power between Netflix and HBO and controlling all the downstream TV and movie rights. We'd have this great technology to go with our great programming. Maybe we should buy it. Yeah. So Seems you know, like a great idea. Yeah, guys. So they float the idea up the chain of command, and it gets shot down. And they said, you know what? We'd rather spend that money on programming. And don't worry about Netflix. They're going to fly. Yeah, there's out. almost this sense that they're like, good idea, but can I show you the trailer for the new season of Curb Your Enthusiasm? <laughs> right. Like, I mean, and by the way, you know. Like, Let's let's take these IT guys with these great ideas and like turn the volume down a little. Right, bit. Yeah, and also like, my computer isn't working. Do you think you can fix that? <laughs> yeah, you know, right. Right. I mean it's kind of amazing. Right, yeah. but the laughs on them now. Yeah, I mean the thing is that you know uh, there was this great quote in 2013, this famous quote when uh, Netflix was putting out House of Cards, and it was like their first big shot at doing an, kind of an HBO-like drama. Mm-hmm. And Ted Sarandos told GQ Magazine, he said, you know, our goal is to become HBO faster than HBO can become Netflix. And boy, you look at that. What, and <laughs> boy, that. Boy, that proved true. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's here we are, you know, five, six years later, and you can't look at it without thinking, wow, like, Netflix has just gone so much further in terms of mastering the art of television than HBO has in terms of mastering the science. So here's the other thing. Mm-hmm. Robert Greenblatt, talk to us about him yep. and and what we should expect from him going forward. Post-Plepler. So, so as, yeah, Plepler goes out days later, you know, AT&T announces they've hired uh, Robert Greenblatt, who used to be the head of uh, entertainment Showtime and then the head of uh, NBC. And, you know, it's a great hire. He's got this track record of turning around. He put Showtime on the map, really, in terms of improving their program. And he did a great job bringing NBC back from, like, last place to first place. He knows the program inside of it, right? That's not going to be a problem. They, you know, and... The big thing with Plepler is like, okay, they did all this great programming. Everyone loves Game of Thrones, Veep, you know, Succession. They have all this great, these great shows. The problem is that uh, what AT&T wants to do is they want to combine that great program with programming from the other assets that the they TBS, acquired. The TBS, TBS TNT, Warner Brothers, all these things they have. They want to put them all together in one place. And Plepler was not the person to do that. I mean, historically, all these Time Warner assets worked like completely independent nation states they did not like working with each other they were pretty much openly hostile to each other at times yeah bend the knee bend the knee so bottom line stay tuned on this right to see yeah it's gonna be an amazing competition i feel like i have to go back through this interview and pick out all of joel's (laughs) game of thrones there's more there's more good lord absolutely i've got 15 more (laughs) (laughs) that could be another business week extra i'm thinking a little quiz joel weber editor of the magazine felix gillette writer at bloomberg business week I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I wanna drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for the drive to the close. Steve Kroll, Managing Director at Monus Crespi Heart & Co. Back with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. The convener of the Titans Dinner uh, held last night, was it, uh, Steve? You know, you get these yes. guys together. Uh 
what was the mood? We're going to get well, into some names. What was the mood? Well, first of all, let me uh, describe to the listeners what we do every month is get uh, 20 of the biggest financiers uh, at that time that can come to a dinner, and we have it nearby, and we discuss macro and we discuss uh, stock ideas. I think the mood was uh, long-term bullish, but there was apprehension that a couple of the things that have been on the docket recently that were uh, considered encouraging have faded. First, North Korea is not moving along with denuclearization at all. They're just probably stopped. Second, I think the China thing is going to be okay, but it's going to be diluted, and there's not going to be the enforcement that we had hoped. And uh, thirdly, and probably the most important, the market is up, and earnings seem to be rolling over, and not only in the U.S., all over. So there was apprehension that the next couple of weeks we could have a you know 3 to 5% correction, of which we're having part of the last couple of days. So I think long-term, very bullish uh, because interest rates are down and they're going to stay down. Go What's back. long-term to these guys? Well, I think most of these guys, uh, very few hedge funds come to these uh, dinners. Most of them are institutions. We had actually, if you count the re- uh, the companies that they represented, it was $7 trillion in equity. So it's, it's it's real assets. Um, you know, I think the next year, I think they, they so that's expect... that's long-term yeah, that, That's long-term. And that, I mean, I think that's about far as far out as you can... Uh, predict. I mean, remember in October, we were talking four, not us, but they were talking four rate increases by the Fed in 19. Now we're talking one, maybe zero, and maybe a A rate cut. The the whiplash, we were just talking about that with our team. So it's... The whiplash that from the thinking overall, from the Fed thinking, you know, and we just said, what was it a year, year and a half ago, this whole, you know, synchronized global growth now has gone to synchronized global slowdown. Exactly. And then evidence has proven that to be true. The other thing is, though, that if you also look around the world, whether it's in Europe or uh, all the countries that we can obviously name, where else are you going to put your money? And it, everything comes back to the U.S. with low interest rates. And I think the Fed is quickly doing its job. And some companies are, I mean, take retail. It's really quite amazing. These weren't names that were mentioned last night, but you have Walmart and Target do a pretty good job. Coles. And then And Coles. And then today you see Burlington Coat, which you would think would do well, and a whole rash of other names that are stumbling. So it really seems uh, in this environment, it's a game of musical chairs in the same industry where whether it's oil or retail or what have you. But isn't it, Steve, I feel like with retail, if you get it, if you figure out what consumers want, how they want it, whether it's online, easy pickup or so on and so forth, and the right merchandise, you're going to sell stuff. Correct. And but I feel like that's true for any industry. You're 100% right. But, the, you know, they, they, they do change. Um, but I think generally the, the mood was, as I said, long-term positive, but short-term you have a, uh, you know, a comeuppance here. Sorry, we were distracted by Carol's watch, which started uh, talking to her. <laughs> I Not actually a have it turned off, too. Do you, though? I do. I think it's listening to us. You usually get, get in trouble uh, for that, getting Carol. Get in some, trouble uh, for that. Just getting some really good investment ideas here uh, from Steve Kroll, who's with us. You know, we were talking. You know, one name that I saw on this list here, uh, Steve, is a couple private equity names. Blackstone, Apollo, among them. We've been talking a lot about private equity over the past few days. Yeah. Uh, what's behind that? The... 
alternate investment um, vehicles, uh, Apollo, uh, Blackstone particularly, was highlighted. Uh, they have the red- regular recurring earnings. Yeah. Uh, with the high yields, all of a sudden, when you're getting an eight and some odd percent yield and you have regular earnings in this environment, in this market, it's look- looking pretty attractive. So I think that was, in the case of uh, not so much Apollo, but in the case of Blackstone, mm-hmm. that was clearly one of the winners that all everybody wrote down. I was thinking uh, about all the PE conversations. Do they become kind of the ultimate mutual fund or ETF? Yes. Because these guys, yes. the PE firms, are investing in so many different that's things. Right. So if that's how they you are, they are the new investment vehicle. That's right? exactly right. Well, and and what but Steve Schwartz, but their stocks, they absolutely. Own stocks. Well, you know, yeah. you, years ago, T. Rowe Price, Hutton, uh, Merrill Lynch, or you know whoever right. that was the game then. Now it is the alternative investments. Well, and one of the things, Steve Schwartz, when we were here, what he would point out is, because we would inevitably ask him, but your stock hasn't done so well. And he would say, people don't understand it, A, they don't understand it like you're describing it, Steve. But he would also point out, from a dividend perspective, these are very rich-paying dividend stocks in a Correct. lot of cases. I think a year ago, people only bought them for the dividends, not the growth. Yes. And I've seen in the last three to six months a total change. Now, part of it has been that interest rates aren't going up four times now. Yeah. Uh, if they stay flat the whole year, then these become particularly good investments for uh, not only institutions, but the the mom and pops that want to buy uh, uh, something that yields more than a, uh, a fixed income security. How are people feeling about tech? Really, Amazon, yeah. Well, Amazon, you know, very, very okay. eclectic. You yeah. know, everyone still likes Amazon. They're doing the best job. You know, it's had a correction here. But the fangs are, uh, you know, Facebook's back on, on the population uh, uh, love, uh, love story. But uh, a couple of folks like Google. Google, you know, Google is starting now to outperform the some of the other ones. But the eclectic names I thought that came up, uh, one was Progressive Insurance because I haven't heard that in a long time, mm. and they have a tremendous ROI. Um, I also saw the uh, two casinos, Caesars, not necessarily because there are icons involved, um, and I don't know how involved he can get because he can't own too many casinos in in, in New Jersey. That would, he would uh, Caesars has four, and that would and then the Trop would be five. But uh, so they may sell off something. But uh, uh, with MGM and Caesars, it was really on the handheld gaming as we go forward because mm-hmm. you're going to have your regulars go to the casino, but kids in a year or two or adults in a year or two it's it's going to be like Fortnite on on your blackberry and that's where the that's the holy grail of the casino uh, unfortunately wasn't uh, it both both names. at the, uh, radio row at the super bowl and the nba uh all-star tech conference both of them right folks from those yep. worlds were all talking about kind of mobile gaming yeah and oh, it's, 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 it. it's, yeah. it's unbelievable and uh now you're seeing it picked up in the papers on on a daily basis uh so you know i don't know how we get from here to there but new jersey's allowed it, and the other states are going to surely allow it just like they did the lotteries that's right DraftKings we caught up with yeah. at the uh, they had a at whole the super pa- bowl they had a whole panel at the nba right. Uh, right. summit that right. was just, just on- devoted to that on the gaming aspect. Steve Kroll, Managing Director at Monus Crespi Heart & Co., convener of the Titans Dinner. We always love catching up with you, and soon it will be tennis season, and we're going to be talking a lot more. Tennis. Yeah, could you just kind of hurry up with spring yeah, already? Exactly. Well, you know, it is it? spring soon, and yeah. tennis has started. Uh, Nadal lost a touch ma- tough match the other day, but uh, uh, we, will, uh, we will see you at the U.S. Open. we got to run. Steve Kroll, thank you so much. 
Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.